0: It is Memorial Day weekend, and um, one of my favorite presidents in my lifetime is uh, George H.W. Bush, who's going to turn 94 in a couple of weeks. And yesterday, as part of his experience with um, Memorial Day, at age 93 in his wheelchair, having just lost his wife months ago, uh, he hung out with with veterans at the VFW in Kennebunkport, Maine. Uh, i just I just think he 's such an honorable man I, I just love uh, the, this president and uh, one of the things that I always found so cool about him was up until uh, nineteen i 'm sorry up until two thousand and fourteen uh, his ninetieth birthday he did his last annual sky dive and this is a picture of him doing that annually just to push himself uh, he would He would skydive on his birthday. Imagine doing that on your 90th birthday. Uh, President Bush was a World War II pilot. He was uh, uh, the director of the CIA. He was a vice president and a president, and obviously, he had a son who became a president and another son who was a governor. He is a modern day John Adams in many ways, but far less temperamental if you're a student of history. One of the things that I'm fascinated about about his skydiving passion is what I've heard him reference and others who I've known who were in the military reference too, which is uh, when they start the experience of having to skydive, which usually happens in basic training, if you're a paratrooper or you're an Air Force pilot or a Navy pilot, you you learn to jump out of a plane, And, and when it happens, you... Uh, according to the three students that I had in ministry back in Florida, all three of them would say the first time you're just hoping that the chute opens. And and actually, the, the, they help with that. Your, your, your pull, it, the chute pull, is attached to a, a line. And as they jump out, um, it pulls out for them. So they're only free-falling for seconds before the chute opens. And that's good for the first time. Everybody's like, oh, just getting out of the plane, and I'm so glad it's, I'm not going to die, and you float down, and you're like, oh, I can see everything. To a person, though, what they said is the more they had to do it, the more they began to enjoy the free fall portion. And the people who do this recreationally, that's all they do it for. They wouldn't pull the chute if they didn't have to. The whole experience is, I'm going to enjoy the dive and they do these tricky things where they float all over the place and they join hands and they do acrobatics. Go on YouTube if you haven't seen it before. The free fall is everything. They're finding new ways to extend free fall. They've got these new uh, jumpsuits they have where these people that look like, like a flying squirrel, these squirrel flying suits, and people jump out of planes And their normal skydiving suit now has these air things that catch the air and help them to fly uh, on a a more level plane and for longer times. Um, They've even had people who've tried to experiment with not having to pull the chute at all. They've landed in in a football field full of boxes, you know, with uh, trying to see if they could be like a bird, fly and land. And and this is the experience of the the seasoned parachutist, this skydiver, she or he loves the free fall. I've thought about that as it relates to the walk of faith. In our lives, uh, in many ways, uh, when you become a Christian, uh, God's design would be that you would learn his love, learn his care, learn his faithfulness, learn to trust him, to grow in your not only knowledge of Him, but your experience of the goodness of God. And at first, as a Christian, you, you kind of get uh, pushed out on a little journey of faith, and very quickly the chute opens, and you go, oh, thank the Lord, He provided. But as you grow in your faith, it seems that God takes a longer and longer time to proverbially pull the chute. Now, if you're like me, much of my life when I was being challenged to believe that God was going to come through and provide, if you'll stay with the parachute analogy, I would just grit my teeth and close my eyes and be like, oh, Jesus, please provide, or I would complain about how long it was taking for the chute to open. And over time, I just began to realize that God, His design, His hope for us is that we would actually enjoy the free fall that we would have enough confidence in him and his timing that this, the span between when the need we have becomes evident and God's provision of that need actually happens, that that season wouldn't be just awful, teeth-grinding, squinting, screaming, bloody murder, fear. That it would be a, actually a time of great anticipation but also a looking around to say, look at, look at this, this is incredible. I, look at the experience I'm getting to have right now. Today, obviously, we continue our series in the Gospel of John. And in two different sections of these first 13 verses of John 7, we, we see the issue of timing. And, and it's made me think a lot about God's timing in my life and how I've reacted to it, and the difference between my time and God's time, and, and how many times in my life I've been grateful that God's sovereign will overran my free will, and was thankful that He kept me from places that I didn't need to be. We begin in John 7, 1 through 2, as a little background, if you are tracking with us through this and that is that after this jesus went about in galilee he would not go about in judea because the jews were seeking to kill him now the jews feast of booths was at hand what we have to ask whenever you see and you're studying your bible and the first two words are after this you have to ask what after what and so if you, if you weren't here last week, I commend that sermon to you online at prismchurch.com. You can also download our sermons through the iPod podcast. But I would say uh, what had happened previous to this is Jesus dropping this truth megaton bomb on the crowd that was following him around, thousands of people that had been there to see him turn a few loaves and fishes into enough for a banquet for thousands, and Jesus brought truth that was so uncomfortable that it effectively sent most of the crowd packing. Now with Jesus having very little public support, he knew that the religious leadership in Jerusalem, so he is in Galilee, which is away from the province of of Judea, where the capital, Jerusalem, was. And, And Jesus knew that the Jews intended to kill him. Now, he wasn't acting cowardly. He knew his purpose was to die. He knew his death was inevitable. But Jesus was concerned about divine timing. Now, why didn't he go to the Feast of Booths? And just be crucified then. I mean, if he was going to be crucified, one feast seems as good as another, right? Uh, Jesus could have gone to any of the feasts. These were all equal in size and enthusiasm. But Jesus had to be sacrificed for our sins at the Passover festival. Because that festival celebrated the atoning sacrifice for the people of Israel. The Passover festival wasn't any more enthusiastically attended than the festival of booths, but Christ needed to fulfill the law, and the symbolism of the Passover was part of God's plan for the redemption of his people. There was a reason he delayed his own crucifixion, and his brothers, we'll see, had no clue about the agenda. There's a terrific uh, summary of the Festival of Booths, and it has relevance to uh, our discussion today, but this came from Ligonier Ministries. The Festival of Booths was one of the feasts, and it was the one that was most joyful. Known as the Feast of Tabernacles, this celebration was the last of the fall festivals and was held at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and olives were harvested in Israel. This was a time to thank God for all of the preceding year's provision and to pray for a good rainy season which lasted from October to March. Primarily, the Feast of Booths was designed to remember the wilderness journey of the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan when God made people live in booths, if you'll check out Leviticus 23. And during that time of the feast, East Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth, a sukkah, to live in for a week. And living in booths reminded them that their success in Canaan was wholly on the account of the Lord's grace. He brought them to the land of promise filled with milk and honey, and he could just as easily take them out of it. It was a tangible reminder, this festival, of his provision in the wilderness. And it showed the Israelites that they must always trust the Lord for their supply. At the Feast of Booths, the Israelites gave up the comforts of their homes in order to commemorate God's salvation. This was the festival. Now, there's a correlation between our study today and our experience as believers in Jesus, and it's this. The number one priority of our Savior is not our immediate comfort. In fact, God will intentionally lead us into difficulty to remind us, we broken and stubborn people, of our need for Him. And one of the ways He does this is by making us wait. For those of us who are naturally impatient, this can be an excruciating exercise, but in the end, it reveals God's glory more magnificently to us. So I want to look at two aspects of timing This morning as we study Jesus' experience with his brothers in the first 13 verses of John 7 and say this to begin with, our timing usually demonstrates our pride. Our timing usually demonstrates our pride. Verses 3 through 7 of John 7 says this, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So you see the juxtaposition of our time and his time. This is a very common experience for most Christians. The sense that I have a timetable on which I would prefer God to move. He seems to have an agenda I know nothing about and a time and schedule that clearly is not my own. His brothers, if you look in context, obviously had seen a reduction in Jesus's crowd size. You know, think about their experience. They're half brothers, obviously. Jesus was born of their mother and the Holy Spirit. And they, of course, see that their brother, their oldest brother, is becoming a bit of a celebrity, and they're watching on the periphery, and they came to see the thousands fed, and then perhaps came back and said, what happened to the crowd? You know. So these guys uh, are, are determined, based on their, recogni- their recognition that Jesus' is, his gang is a little bit small these days, that they're going to help a brother out. Uh, so they suggest to him hey you know what don't work here in galilee you got to go to jerusalem where the people are rebuild the ministry i mean if you're going to be a big deal here in our religious world you got to get on top of this shrinking crowd thing we got to get the, the crowd growth movement going here for you we love you jesus but let us give you some friendly advice some brotherly advice Obviously, they didn't realize that the incarnate God didn't need their counsel, thank you very much. Jesus' purpose was not to make a public display of power so that he could be crowned king in the way that the world and certainly his brothers would want him to be. His brothers had a faulty understanding about what Jesus had come to do, which was to reconcile the world to himself through being an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was to be the perfect, sinless sacrifice for us. Jesus explains to them, tries to, that his agenda will run counter to what theirs is. The brothers believed that he, you know, had some special purpose in life. But they still thought, you know what, we're going to give you some advice. You may be a big deal. Mom's kind of hinted. I mean, I don't know how much they knew about the birth of their older brother, but Jesus was listening patiently at the arrogant suggestions that these guys had any idea what he was doing. Now, before we get cocky about what um, we would have done in a similar circumstance, um, before you marvel at the arrogance of the brothers, uh, you have to put yourself in their shoes. They they grew up around him. Uh, and had become exceedingly familiar with Jesus. And perhaps some of you can relate. If you were a a Christian early on in life, uh, as a child you came to faith, or if you're older and you came to faith in your 20s, um, it's been some time now and you can get familiar enough with Jesus where you begin to forget who you are in relationship to Him. You adopt a posture that demonstrates you've forgotten Uh, what the relationship really is, he being creator and you being creation. Like his brothers, you may even get to a point where you presume a lot about what you know. And we demonstrate our hubris by effectively talking to Jesus as his brothers did, saying, we know what's best. We may not say it out loud, but this is how we feel. This is certainly what our emotions would tell us. We know what's best to do and when to do it. And in truth, like the brothers Uh, We are largely ignorant of God's plan for our lives. Uh, What are you waiting on God for? Our family has a dear friend who is a beautiful, uh, godly, talented, precious sister in Christ who's celebrating her 36th birthday today, and she still isn't married. Uh, We've known her for 15 years, and Carolyn and I can assure you, It's not her. Um, Guys are intimidated by her awesomeness, really. And uh, it's not her fault, but she has to trust that God's timing is best for her and believe that His plan is best for her. And she has turned down some guys who were not believers because the Scriptures say, that you are to not be unequally yoked with somebody who does not know Jesus. You're not to be married to somebody. You're not to intentionally marry somebody who isn't a Christian. And so she has had really attractive, really wealthy people approach her, and she said, you know, you don't know the Lord. She has to trust that God's timing and His plan are best. I have another friend who's miserable in his job. Um... But he can't quit because he has responsibilities to provide for his family, and nothing, no alternative seems to be presenting itself. So he waits. He waits on the Lord and struggles to believe that God knows what he's doing. I prayed at the beginning of 2018, and I believed that this year was going to be the year of transformation for Prism Church, and and I shared that with you. Um, but, having fifteen to twenty of our friends leave the church by moving out of state wasn 't the transformation I had in mind. I had something m- m- much more grand in <laughs> in store. but I trust the Lord we 'll continue proclaiming the truth of his word, and we 'll leave the results to his sovereign plan. Uh, back to our text in verse seven um, and somewhat related to our mission as a church, the Bible clearly displays again that Jesus loved us enough to tell us how our sin is hurting us and grieving the Father. Verse 7, it says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, Jesus does talk about love, and he talks about a lot of stuff, but lost in the postmodern discussion of the fluffy Jesus is that Jesus was very clear with people, hey, listen, what you're doing is grievous to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. It, it offends a holy God. If a person is intent on doing what they want to do and defining reality as they wish instead of, well, by the design of the Creator, then when Jesus speaks contrarily to anything in their life, they may react angrily to his expectations for them. And the New Testament clearly shows that Jesus taught that our sinful actions are offensive to God. The picture given is John 1, 4, and 5, which says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And again in John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Um, It is summertime, and... uh, uh, the school year is coming to a conclusion for uh, elementary, middle, and high school students. And so the morning ritual of waking kids up will take a summer hiatus. Uh, this process is a labor of love. It is akin to Jesus' movement in our lives in many ways. Uh, like a parent coming into their child's room in the morning and turning on the light, we by nature, human beings by nature react instinctively against God's commands to us. They agitate our nature, which says we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But as our parents know that getting up and going to school is for our long-term benefit, God lovingly makes us uncomfortable so that his good purposes can be realized in us. And ultimately, his purpose is that we would see more of his glory. He made us for his glory. He wants us to see his majesty, and it's not just because he's egotistical. I don't think he is at all. It's because he knows that we find the most joy in seeing his majesty. I mean, you saw the royal wedding, millions of people, they just want to see majesty. It gives joy. We watch sports, we, watch, we go to concerts to marvel at people and things. So imagine getting to see the marvelous, holy God and the joy that that would bring us. And this is really the purposes of God. The prophet Isaiah echoed and really channeled, if you want to call it that's what prophets did in the Old Testament. They spoke, thus saith the Lord, which means when they spoke, they were hearing from God. And the prophet Isaiah did what many Prophets did, which was be used by God to remind the people of how God has worked in the past, reminding them. Festivals were designed to remember. And the prophets came along to say, hey, do you remember all that God did for us? Do you remember? Because I want you to take heart. I want you to look back and see these things. And verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 43 have always been a favorite of mine, something I meditate on when I'm feeling anxious. and the flames shall not consume you. For I am, the whole, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sibah in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Do you hear? His cry to you, his daughter, or his son, you're precious to him. This really is the essence of the struggle, isn't it? Believing that God is loving. Many of us, especially those of us who theologically got trained in the world of God's sovereign over all things... Don't have much trouble believing that God can do stuff. It's whether God wants to or whether God is nice, if you want to put it in the vernacular. Our timing seems to always reveal that we think we know best, but here's what God's timing always reveals. Reveals His purpose. I I read from verses 8 through 12 here. Jesus says to His brothers, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Quick Bible note for you, whenever they talk about going up, it's geographical. Um, actually, Jerusalem was to the south of where they were, but on the topography, you had to actually climb uh, uphill to get to Jerusalem. As well, we see in this, when Jesus is beginning to talk about his timing, our timing, the saying is, hindsight is 20 It's easy to look back and clearly see how things unfolded or how they would have unfolded if circumstances had been different. For you and for me, uh, seeing the future is uh, impossible, but for God, it's easy, requires no effort whatsoever. He sees the end from the beginning. We, on the other hand, only see the beginning when we're at the end. He's never worried once. Do you know that about our God? He's never said, oh no, I'm anxious about this. He's he's got it all planned out. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows he can intervene at any moment. He's in complete control. He's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, all-everywhere. His purposes are always the reason he delays in bringing about the answers to our prayers. God's timing is about his purposes. It says in verse 8, you go to the feast, I'm not going to the feast, my time has not yet fully come. And yet it says after this, his brothers went up, and he went up not publicly, but in private. And this passage points out something really fascinating. And that is Jesus is often present in the middle of our circumstances, but it isn't obvious to us. Jesus went quietly to the feast, but he was there. And the Jews, like us, were saying, ah, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is he? Have you ever felt like that? Felt like all alone? Jesus wasn't active in whatever section of your life you were wanting him to be involved. And truth be told is he was there. The crowd, too, was interestingly debating the substantive issue for us who believe that God is in control of everything, and that is, is God good? They were debating the heart of the struggle. In verse 12, it says, there was much mothering about him amongst the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, he's leading the people astray. And this is what's going on in our hearts. We're like, is God good? At the end of this, is this going to be a good thing when the loved one I'm praying for, that they might know Jesus? When... The job that I'm praying for, when the health issue I'm praying about, when this all comes to an end, is this going to be a good thing? Because all I can think about is it might be painful, it might be hurtful, it, it might be something I don't want. And in the middle of this kind of anxiety, trendy and trite sayings do not help. I, I grow weary of people going, well, everything happens for a reason, Um, Everything doesn't happen for a reason. That's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says in Romans 8, 28, and 29 is this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And this gives us What the good end in all of this is, even if it ends in what you might think is a disaster, your business doesn't succeed, that person that you've been praying for doesn't get well. You might say, well, how is any of that good? Well, the purposes of God are that we'd be conformed to the image of His Son, that we would see the glory of the Father in our own lives, in the lives of others. This majesty that we would see and marvel at and be thrilled by. This is what feeds the soul. This is what gives us life. This is why God is saying to you and I, I'll give you freedom from your anxiety right this second. But the purpose of this entire enterprise is that you might know me better. Perhaps you struggle with letting go of the controls, so to speak, and trusting God. Control issues may be part of your life. And uh, it does negatively affect families, as somebody with control issues can tell you, and that'd be me. Uh, People grow weary of you having an agenda for their life. Uh, My adult kids, um, I love them. They love me. They love their father. But when I ask them questions like, hey, when are you coming home, their response is, why? And so I'm having to learn to say, hey, I'm really anxious to see you. When are you coming home? Because they have been so like b- bludgeoned, apparently, for two decades of me having some kind of agenda that they're like, yeah, I'm not coming home if there's something you need from me. <laughs> you know I mean? If you're just coming home, then I'm coming home. But this is something I've had to face. And you know, if you have control issues, uh, you perhaps need to face up to it and begin to work through it. But God wants us to enjoy each day. Each day has enough worries of its own, Jesus says, uh, Matthew six thirty three thirty four 34. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here's something ironic about our unwillingness to trust the God of our salvation. Uh, we often put our trust in strangers and give up control in our life in what would be a dangerous situation. We just don't think about it because we inherently trust the powers that be. Uh, For years before I got married, I had these really vivid plane crash dreams. Uh, I I don't know the psychology of that. Is there a therapist in the house? All I can tell you is that they were really vivid, and they made me a little anxious about flying. And so I'd get on planes, and I would sort of white-knuckle it a bit. Now that I'm older, you know, I'm not as worried. My theology is corrected that I thought it was a premonition about how I was going to (laughs) die. So uh, flying is not an anxiety-provoking thing for me anymore. And it isn't for most people because we presume that the government and the airlines are working to protect us, to train pilots, to oversee mechanics, to deliver us safely to our destination. So we get on the plane, the train, the subway, And we presume that everything's okay, but these things are moving fast, and they crash, and people die. And yet, every day, we get on a bus driven by a stranger. We have no idea whether they're loaded or not. We just assume that they got, you know, tested for this kind of thing. And that's quite a presumption, don't you think? But we go with it. Every day, we experience this ability to believe that everything's going to be okay and our capacity to trust God and believe that His purposes are good are no different of an experience. It requires believing that God by nature is good and that whatever His purposes are ultimately will bring us closer to Him and more in conformity to the image of Jesus. Another verse that I've memorized uh, verses, verses, is uh, 1 Peter 5 verses 6 and 7 that say humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you we celebrate memorial day to remember the sacrifice of those who gave their lives to protect the freedoms we have in this country we set aside holidays for the same reason the lord had the israelites celebrate festivals it's to remember what God had done because we're so prone to forgetting and then losing heart when the next struggle comes along. So I ask you, what are you doing in your life to regularly remind yourself of God's faithfulness? Have you set aside time daily to read the promises of God, to study the attributes of God, or to pray for the Spirit to give you a fresh appreciation for all that He has done? and is doing in your life. Recently, in a time of prayer, I was reading through the Psalms, and I realized, you know, I haven't given much thanks lately, so my whole journal entry was, thank you for this, thank you for that, thank you for this, thank you for this, and I was sort of embarrassed when I got to the end of it. I'm like, I got a lot of nerve complaining. Our communion celebration each week is a feast in and of itself. It's a festival. The bread of Jesus, broken body, and the wine of his precious blood given for our atonement, these things as well are given to remind us of what Jesus has already done for us, which is magnificent. It's, It's so much bigger than any small problem we have. He's taking care of our sin problem. He's taking care of our judgment problem. That's why one of the first verses I memorized, and I, it's, I live by this verse because I'm an anxious guy, and this helps me. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? May a meditation on this verse... Give us fresh hope and encouragement this morning to trust God's timing. Let us pray.